This evening's text is from 1 Peter 17, excuse me, 1, 17 through 24. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 24. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, and not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not from perishable, but from imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Just to ask uh, one other prayer for the leeches. I don't think this would be violating a confidence, uh, and if it is, forgive me. Um, uh, they have planned all year for what's almost an annual trip to the Boundary Waters where they canoe and backpack. And uh, Aiden is not able to uh, do it as of right now. So pray for a miracle that um, they could get their vacation in. So that uh, would be really sweet if, uh, if that would happen. Well, as, uh, as we've already mentioned, our beloved Suzanne Hassel passed away. And if we could go ahead just at the beginning and put up her lovely picture. Uh, she had a... Oh. <laughs> Let's get this out of the way before the funeral. Um, she was diagnosed uh, July 1st, uh, six years ago, with cancer and um, fought very, very bravely. And uh, Friday morning, around 11 o'clock, she died with her uh, family around her and her dog, Maverick, at her feet. And she leaves a beautiful legacy behind her. She led numerous retreats for us. If you've come into the church in the last few years, you might not have gotten to know her because she was so consumed with the cancer. But in the beginning, she, she did that. She served as a spiritual director for many. She preached our first Easter sunrise service. Um, she taught us a lot about the spiritual disciplines. You can get her teachings on the, on the website, and especially about Sabbath. And uh, there are odd, quirky things that come up when you're with a loved one dying. And just to, I thought this was, <laughs> she had just been diagnosed. And she called Paul. She said, get over here with your camera. This is as good as I'm ever going to look. <laughs> yeah, so that. And we knew to use this picture because Suzanne was a planner and she did retreats on legacy. And um, some of you may have been to those, but she had a worksheet about what you want for your funeral. 
And so when she passed, the children found the worksheet, and uh, we sat on the porch where Suzanne had spent so many hours with so many people and, and uh, started working on the service. And, and she had written in very clear details of what she'd wanted. She said she wanted lots of flowers, wild preferably. Don't let people tell you there's too many. There can never be too many flowers. And we want them in the service, and then we're going to bring them over and have a party in the backyard. And uh, Jonathan, there will be no flyovers. That was in the, <laughs> Jonathan is an Air Force fighter pilot. <laughs> so she anticipated all sorts of things. And she said that Paul could be the one to speak, and that if he needed help, he could go to uh, funeralsermons.org and came up on a website. <laughs> so it was vintage Suzanne. So... Uh, and honestly, I, I didn't quite know what to do tonight. I'll tell you what I decided to do. Because again, we're a family. Some of us have walked closely with Suzanne. Some of us didn't get the, the honor to. And so rather than having uh, you know, two memorial services, uh, I just wanted to make sure you knew that you're all invited on Thursday night, 4 o'clock, at Sequoia Presbyterian Church for a memorial service. And we will uh, remember her well that night. But... Uh, Tonight won't be a second memorial service. Tonight we're going to just continue our journey through 1 Peter. Um, Given the the nature of the week, I I really didn't get to prepare much for the uh, sermon until this morning. And as I picked up this text, uh, you know, it just flat out talks about the fear of the Lord. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's Peter's advice for living in a very broken, very troubled culture is fear God. And I, I remember just feeling really disconnected from this text after all that we've gone through with Suzanne this week. It's just like, wow. Because that's not language that we use much today. Uh, we think Suzanne or any godly person. Uh, the first thing we say isn't usually, man, she was full of fear. I, that's how I wouldn't describe her that way, and I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say, and I don't think you'll hear much on uh, Thursday night. She feared God. We don't use that language much anymore, and so uh, I thought that we'd continue to drill down into this passage that is probably the the, the richest exposition of the fear of God in the whole New Testament, and. By the way, just to kind of disabuse this notion, I've had a friend say once, well, isn't it that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, you feared God, and in the New Testament, you loved him? No. Um, no, it's, it's, not, it's not that way. Um, in Matthew 10, 28, our Lord commands us to fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hebrews says that our Lord's prayer in Gethsemane was, Heard for his godly fear. Isaiah 11.3 prophesied that the Messiah would delight in the fear of the Lord. And Paul looks around at a culture in decline and laments that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The repentant criminal asks the other criminal in amazement at Calvary, Don't you fear God? When our Lord wanted to indicate the character of the unjust judge in a parable, he said that he neither feared God, nor cared about men. And God's people, on the other hand, are described in the New Testament as those who are living in the fear of the Lord. The mother of our Lord prays God that his mercy extends to those who 
fear him. The Apostle Paul called upon Christians to make holiness perfect in the fear of God, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And Peter will say in 1 Peter 2, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. And so this, uh, this quote from John Murray in a classic book on New Testament ethics, I think is, is very biblical. Not that one. I'm sorry. I, uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. That one. Thank you. I got that backwards. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. If we are thinking of the marks of biblical piety, none is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord. That's, I'm going to read that again. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. If we are thinking of the marks of biblical piety, none is more characteristic than the fear of the Lord. So the problem must be with us. If I don't associate the fear of the Lord with a woman like Suzanne, then I must not fully understand what it means. So that's what we're going to continue to, uh, to dig into tonight. Last week we pointed out that the, the Greek word means uh, to be in awe of or to be reverent of in the presence of someone greater than yourself. And some of the translations, I think, are more helpful when they translate it as be in awe of God or be reverent towards God. That catches the idea more because, remember, we have no fear of punishment as sons and daughters of God because Christ bore our judgment in the cross, uh, and so we don't fear his punishment. We are in awe of him and we reverence him. And I think just right off the bat, we ought to acknowledge that our culture is about as opposite of a first century culture in terms of honor uh, and reverencing a superior as you possibly could be. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying in a patriarchal hierarchical culture, one of the core values of all of life was honoring and reverencing people in authority. In our culture, the core value is make fun of people in authority. Uh, make a joke about them, make a meme about them, cut off their head in a play, you know, whatever you want to do, it's okay because we're Americans. You know? So the value in America is, and it's been this way at least since Watergate, but after reading the book Hamilton, I would argue it's been this way since Washington, <laughs> that... Uh, disrespect people in authority. So to read a text like this just cuts against the grain of all of our, all of our values. So we're going to have to work hard to rebuild this value uh, that comes from a very different culture. Now, what does it mean to be in awe of God, to, to live in, with reverence towards God as we live out our exile? And that's such an intriguing phrase, isn't it? Conduct yourself with fear as you are in exile in this world, as you live in a world whose values are very different than your own, as you live in a culture of death, as you live in a culture of greed, as you live in a culture of violence, as you try to uh, live as faithfully as a single or raise your children or, or, or conduct yourself in a godly way in the business world, in a culture that is in flames, fear God. Get up in the morning and set your mind, first of all, on Him and the reality of Him and then let everything else fall into place. Now, as with all things, this is not as simple as it first seems. 
And so I'd like to to use a quote from Richard Rohr that I I think gets to the heart of it. It's not an easy quote, um, but the Bible isn't always easy. So uh, there's one paragraph before it. Um, Actually, there's, I'm sorry, there we go. In his book, The Idea of the Holy, Rudolf Otto says that when someone has an experience of the holy, they find themselves caught up in two opposite things at the same time, the mysterium tremendum and the mysterium fasciosum, or the scary mystery and the alluring mystery. We both draw back and are pulled forward into a very new space. In the mysterium tremendum, God is ultimately far, ultimately beyond too much, too much, too much. It inspired fear and drawing back. Many people never get beyond this first half of the journey. If that is the only half of holiness you experience, you experience God as dread, as the one who has all the power, and in whose presence you are utterly powerless. Religion at this initial stage tends to become overwhelmed by a sense of sinfulness and separateness. The defining of sin and sin management become the very nature of religion. Simultaneously with the experience of the holy as beyond and too much is another sense of fascination, allurement, and seduction of being pulled into something very good and inviting and wonderful or the mysterium fascinosum. It's a paradoxical experience. Otto says if you don't have both, you don't have the true or full experience of the holy. Now, there is a a lot in that, but basically the idea that is so often in the Christian life is we have to hold two truths in tension, and that's not easy to do. One of the truths is the great, awesome, terrifying otherness of a power so great we can't even fathom him. That's the the power that Isaiah taps into in Isaiah 6 when he has this vision and he's worshiping and the angels are flying and crying, holy, 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 and he falls at his feet and he says, "Uh, I am a man of unclean lips. So there's that dimension of God's holiness, which is terrifying. And yet there's this second truth, which is equally true, that this awesome, terrifying, holy, pure other has become a man and died so that we could be welcomed into the fellowship of the Trinity. And somehow we hold those two things in our heart, and that's what it means to fear God, to just be in awe both of his otherness and his nearness, and to be just blown away by both. Well, last week we looked at the scary mystery and we looked at that first verse in verse 17 where it talks about God being a, calling on him as a father who judges us impartially. And we, we talked about this idea that even though our final judgment is taken care of at the cross, that there is a sense in which our heavenly father is disciplining us even now. That he is uh, looking for any way that we might be endangering ourselves or others by swerving outside the guard rails of his will. And he is always gently and lovingly calling us back into the straight and narrow way. 
And so one way, one way you fear God is by understanding that there are guardrails and that you're not alone in the world. You're not autonomous. And that there is someone who loves you enough to bring you back if you go outside of his will. That is the scary mystery. Now, the alluring mystery is what verses 18 to 21 uh, talk about. And that's what we'll spend a little time thinking about tonight. This is the other side of the paradox. God has made it possible to know and love him. To become a part of his family. He says, we should fear God knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Uh, The word ransom means to deliver by means of paying a fee. Uh, It could be translated to be redeemed. It was often used for buying someone out of slavery. And so this was a a metaphor that they understood. And, And so the first thing he says is, one of the reasons you should be in awe of God is that he has actually paid a price not just with silver or gold, but with the blood of his own son so that you could become a part of his family. And that he he saved you out of the sins of your forefathers. And very literally, literally, he could be saying he saved you out of all the dysfunction and crap and mess of your family system. You know, I don't know how many times we, we, we talk about this and every family's got its own stuff and every family's imperfect in its own way. And so often we, we get into our, our new family or something like that and we realize, I just did what my dad always did. And I said, I would never do that. Or we get into, we get into a fight with our spouse or our roommate And before you know it, we realize that is the way my parents fought. Or alcoholism starts to raise its ugly head. Or depression. Or an eating disorder. And and these things kind of are passed down from family system to family system. And sometimes we can feel like we're cursed. How can I ever escape the way that I relate? How can I ever escape this habit? How can I ever escape this mental illness that seems to kind of like a cancer go down from family to family? And the glory of the mystery is we've been rescued. We no longer have to live that way anymore. We are in a new family. By the way, that's one of the great reasons why we work so hard at community among the people of God is because we have to re-parent ourselves and re-family ourselves. We have to learn in a new way how to relate to each other. And that's part of God's incredible redemption. But I think there's a bigger idea, too, that Jesus has rescued us from a futile and empty life. That that life apart from the love of Christ and the story of Christ and the meaning of Christ, according to the scripture, is futile and empty. It does not go anywhere. Lately, been listening to a a story about an eccentric southern gentleman named John and as we get to know John in the story he's called a reporter to come in and solve a problem in his little community and the reporter gets to know him and starts 
uh, filing stories on John and his life. And uh, along the way, we find out that John feels just totally trapped in his life. And we find out that John is tormented with guilt and shame, and he just feels like he's going nowhere, and he feels like it's too late. And he doesn't believe in God. And he doesn't know what to do with the pain. And so he calls a friend who owns a tattoo parlor. And he says, I've got a new way to do church. And he invites the friend over and has the friend tattoo him in a very painful way. And he calls that going to church. And he does it over and over and over and over again until there's tattoos upon tattoos upon tattoos. The more he does it, the more violent he wants it to be. Finally, the tattooist becomes uneasy and says, I I, I just can't do this anymore. And John says, please, one more time, let's go to church. John is trying to have someone rescue him from an empty and meaningless life. And he's trying to do it with his own blood. The hope of the gospel is that Christ did that for us. And that's why we live in awe of him. Now, what kind of life is that that we're rescued into, that meaningful life? It's no problem-free life. And as I think about these last six years with Suzanne, she, there were times when she was angry, when she was depressed, when she was discouraged, when she thought it wasn't fair. There were lots of those times. There were times of level eight pain. It was all there. I texted a friend after she died on Friday. The death of a saint is a beautiful and terrible thing. She suffered. And yet, she had meaning. She had hope. She had community. She felt like she had a place in God's work. Even (laughs) she finished writing something the Friday before last Friday. I saw her a week and a half ago. She was in quite steady decline, and she had just now canceled some of her spiritual direction appointments. That's what we're saved into. Not a life without problems or cancer or death or any of that, but a life like we sang about of meaning and hope and purpose and presence and community and comfort, even amidst the brokenness of this world. And that's why we reverence him. Peter wants us to know a little more about this Jesus. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's just such a mind-blowing concept that, that God started working on this before time even began. He started developing this plan before time even existed. Because he loved you so much and he wanted you to be with him so much in the fellowship of the Trinity. This holy, other, entirely separate God 
started thinking about how to save you before time began. Suppose you're dating somebody at your first anniversary and the guy texts the young lady and says, so what do you want to do tonight? She says, I don't know. What do you want to do? He says, I don't know. What do you want to do? She says, I don't know. What do you want to do? He says, I don't know. What do you want to do? Is she going to feel overwhelmed with love? Now suppose that a year earlier he began planning a very romantic night with a, I was going to say a hotel room. This is single, so let's scratch that. But we know, a dinner, <laughs> uh, flowers, you know, all of that good stuff. And he sacrificially spends a great deal on a gift that he was very thoughtful about picking out. She's going to feel loved because he planned it a long time. Why should we be in awe of God? Because he planned your salvation before time began. Then Peter says, and he was made manifest in the last times for your sake. The preexistent Christ appeared in human history as the Redeemer. In other words, this is the first advent that he's talking about. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pursued us. He chased us. He came after us. And he did all this for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What is he saying? The only way you could ever know a holy other God, the only way you could ever be in relationship with a God who is entirely separate by definition of order of being, the only possible way you could believe was if he took the initiative Come into the world, reveal the face of God, and pay our ransom, rising from the dead to verify that the Father accepted it. And so we are in awe. We revere him because of what he did for us. So as I, as I rethink about Suzanne and her life, and as we're putting together the service for Thursday, I'm thinking a lot about that. And I, I really do think she was a woman who feared God. I think that she really did understand both the scary mystery and the alluring mystery. And I'll end with these two examples. Uh, one of the things Suzanne really believed in was Sabbath. And... Uh, when, uh, when we started the church, that was not really part of my personal practice. When we started the church, I was trying to do a Ph.D. at UT, and we had four kids at home, and Sabbath didn't you know, fit. Um, and a number of years into that, uh, I started to get pretty burned out. And Suzanne, in her own way, and she had a wonderful way of doing this, gave me a book to read on Sabbath. And then in her own way of doing this, she said, can we get together and talk about that? And she would always kind of laugh right before she put the knife. <laughs> you know, she'd just, and she would say, you know, <laughs> one of the reasons you're kind of dying here is you don't take Sabbath. You're experiencing the consequences of disobeying a holy God, Doug, is what she was saying. 
I've taken a Sabbath uh, ever since. But she also really had an appreciation for the alluring mystery. And she had this rich sense that the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices of prayer, fasting, meditation, contemplation, the church calendar, could draw you into the intimate fellowship God wants to have with us. And I was looking at my bookshelf last night, and I realized I've got a couple of her books I never gave back, so I need to give them. Well, I don't know what I'll do with them now. She taught me that. She taught us about drawing into his presence. I think that's what it means to fear God. Let's pray.